morning, Christ Central. I'm, yes, I'm Tamika Ingram. I'm a member of the Mint Hill Community Group, uh, led by the Patels, and I. Um, scripture reading will come from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, NLT. Yes. As the time of King David's death approached, he gave his charge to his son Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to you. He told me if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully, with all their heart and soul. One of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. And there's something else. You know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think best, but don't let him grow old and go to the grave in peace. Be kind to the sons of Barzilla, of Gilead. Make them, make them permanent guests at your table, for they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember Shemai, son of Jerah, the man from Bahurim in Benjamin. He cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing to Mahaniam when he came down to meet me at the Jordan River. I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him, but that oath does not make him innocent. You are a wise man, and, and you will know how to arrange a bloody death from him for him. Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. Solomon became king and sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Ahaz, son of Jotham, began to rule over Judah in the seventh. Year of Pekah's reign in Israel. Ahaz was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord his God and his ancestor David had done. As his ancestor David had done, Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire. In this way, he followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations, and the Lord had driven 
from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the pagan shrines and on the hills and under every green tree. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Amnon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, and his father, David, had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In the, in the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? And then you must tell them, we, are, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against, it, against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had swore to give our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Deaconess Tamika, for reading that scripture for us this morning. Scriptures, it was a lot there. Some names and words we typically don't use every day. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and we're going to finish our sermon series on American Idols with this one I've entitled Chidolatry. Chidolatry. Now, um, we can all agree that children, childhood, and child rearing are important. How we handle them, raise them, love on them says a lot about who we are and who we as a society will become. In fact, we, who, we are who we are, and how we raise our children is tied to how our parents raised and treated us. So this sermon has a dual application, right? Not only to us as parents and also those I call, you know, the aunties and uncles, but to better understand um, how we have been shaped, right? So I welcome you to enter in as a child or caregiver, and you may feel yourself, feel yourself sort of feeling both sides of this, like feeling like the child, right, that experienced a lot of things, and then feeling like the uncle or the aunt or the parent or the grandparent that's now on that end of it. And so with anything that's central and critical to our identity, child, children and childbearing and child, I mean, sorry, child rearing can and have become, again, what I call childolatry. In two ways I want us to see, children and parenting of them can become, first, 
our saviors. Our saviors. And secondly, our sense of worth. How and why have children, the ones we are called to as adults and parents to raise and protect and love, become our saviors, our redeemers? I think one way that is fairly clear to us all is when we seek to have, when we seek to try to have a new life through their lives. The vicarious living, right? They can become our savior in two ways I want us to see in this first point. We look to them to fix our, fix our past. And then we look to them to take our present pain away. In our first passage from 1 Kings, we have David, yeah, the king who wrote most of the Psalms and, you know, the, 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 would be considered the greatest king of Israel ever. He's on his deathbed. And this is his deathbed advice to his son Solomon. And the advice was good up to about verse 4. But not so good after that. Right, Because this is about what? Securing the kingdom for David's sake. This is advice that says, fix my messed up legacy. You know, get this. King David did not tell him, you know what? You should write a bunch of beautiful psalms to the Lord in the field and go through spiritual formation necessary to be a godly and loving king. Yeah, he gave him some, you know, uh, basic advice about following the Lord. But I want you to be like the godfather. You got to regulate. You have to watch your back. This is information, you know, you have to take some folk out, right? You need to be strong and bold and, and not all emotional and weak, like my harp strumming, singing self, right? Overly charismatic self. Notice he doesn't teach him how to be a man after God's own heart. He didn't teach him how not to kill another man to get his wife. The idol of being in charge was alive in David's new idol of redemption for his own life through his son, Solomon. And it's what in part caused Solomon, right? <laughs> to be such a smart, right? He was brilliant, right? He didn't want to be like his dad, right? He was smart, but spoiled, demanding, never satisfied kind of kid. Solomon was a successful rich kid in a way his dad wanted and never was, but, but he was the biggest addict and more heartless than his dad ever was. See, childology on David's part burned his kid into adulthood. And the irony was this, David was disciplined by God. Did you guys know this? He, God said, you cannot build my temple. Why? Because you've caused too much bloodshed, David. And then what is the advice David gives his son? Bloodshed. He passed on that seed, bloodshed, in the life of his son and his son's kingdom, which come up again and again and again in the lives of kings, the children of Solomon, right? Chidolatry in America and even in Christendom today is built and shrouded in some well-meaning, nice-sounding American words, right? What do we say? I do it and push them and treat them this way because I don't want them 
to have what I didn't, or I want them to have more than I have. I want my kids, right, better than me. I don't want him to be like me. I hate my life and the pain I went through, so I don't want her to be bullied and teased like I was. And this is good stuff, maybe. God's command to give to our children is about them knowing him, knowing the goodness that he is about. But for many of us, the motivations get twisted and confused, and it becomes about living our new life through our children. Some of you, man, you love that your kids are athletes because you weren't. You want them to be first string because you sat the bench. You know, your kids, they're taller, they're faster. Wow, finally, I can have a jock for a kid, right? Some of you over-disciplined because you were rebellious. Some of you won't spank or discipline because you were abused and bullied and made fun of as a child. Some of you love that your kid is popular because you were a geek and a nerd and rejected. Some of you want your kids to be a certain size, to to even wear a certain size dress because you remembered how you were teased and you forced them to eat this and not eat this and exercise this way. Men who wanted to be buff, you were always the chubby one. We want our kids to look a certain way. Those of us who weren't too smart to get in all the colleges we wanted to, we want to make sure our kids get in the best schools, elementary, middle, and high schools. Why? Not for them. Because we didn't have the opportunities. I remember I was in the battalion, right? That's the male version of the debutante ball thing, right? It was the introduction of the black aristocracy of Charleston, right? And you went through these classes on how to walk and talk, how to, you know, use the fork and the spoon. You know, you have these uh, folk come in and talk to you about life every Sunday afternoon. You know, a Southern society. How, you know, and, 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 and the hope was that you would marry and associate with people that your parents only dreamed they could associate with, right? I remember how happy my dad was, right? He's just a country boy from outside of Charleston. Finally, his son gets to wear the tuxedo and the top hat and be among the bougie Negroes of Charleston, right? Finally. He worked hard to put me in that position. He was going to show the world that he ain't just brown from Rantoles, South Carolina, right? You see all that you want to be, and you want them to live it. Some of us were described as poor white trash, and now your kids will be uptown charlatans. South End, South Side, South Charlotte, right? 
you were ghetto fabulous. <laughs> and you want your kid to be able to hang out with the Obamas, right? <laughs> You're disappointed, struggling, or failed marriage. You may be forced to wrongly shape your kids. How about love now? How about marriage? How about who they should be with or whether marriage is even a good idea? So careful where you were weak as kids and now are as adults. You know, many of us have this dream, I know I do sometimes, of going back to school. Man, I would be the coolest. I'd be the smartest. And somehow, well, I can't be the fastest, right? But you can through your kid. And what happens in many cases is sometimes we have this overly protective attitude. I call it gold children syndrome, right? Because you were neglected or abused in some way, even abandoned by parents who were too busy in their jobs and relationships or who passed away too early. And now you're over the top with your new substitutionary atonement in your child, right? Your new little savior, the second Adam for your fallen one. We have to protect our invaluable time machine in our kids at all costs even if it means intimacy with our spouses, gone. Even if it means forget the friendships. Even if it means going in deeper debt. Even if it means trying to find churches that minister to our children, despite having any real Jesus-centered teaching. It's funny, I was taking, I took this personality test a while ago. And the personality test revealed, right, what you think you should be more than what you are. So when pressure is on you, you kind of perform based on who the influences your life said you should be. Right? So when you go to work, you look like that. And when you go on the, t on the field, you look like that. And when you're hanging out with friends, you rise and look like that. And what they connected it with is sometimes it's, it's the parental pressure on you where you're not really who you are, but you kind of begin to be shaped and live out who they want you to be. And now we wonder why we struggle with meaning and personhood. We have done and become in large part what our parents wanted to relive through us. Or we are not free, right? Because here's the, other, here's the other side of it. You know what? I'm nothing like my parents. Yeah, you're still very influenced by your parents then. Because whether you end up, and trust me, you're going to see them in you. You're going to try so hard, right? <laughs> Man, my, my mother-in-law is here today. Why she had to come on this sermon But if you want to start an argument, it doesn't matter. She's great. She's the only mom I got left, right? I love when she comes, right? But if you want to start an argument, all you have to say is, Howard, you just like your daddy. Or Kelly, you just like your mama, right? Why? Because we have this, this feeling, this thought, we're trying to escape something about them, right? I would tell you that the cycle, right, this creates is vicious because the parental damage you receive creates condemnation and present pain from the past struggles. And then we are tempted to look at our children to become our new way 
to take our present pain away. Look with me at verse, in, in 1 Kings um, 11, uh, 1 through 5. It says this, Now King Solomon had many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they would turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of, completely, uh, instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable God of the Ammonites. In this way, God, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Now, forward to 2 Kings 16, to that passage. And um, I have my glasses just in case. All right. It says, Ahaz, son of Jotham, began to rule over Judah in the 17th year of King Pekah's uh, reign in, in, in Israel. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as God and his ancestor. Remember, he talked about stuff being passed, passed, passed on down, right? Now, David didn't worship Moloch, but his conversation with Solomon is very close to it. And we'll explain in a minute. Um, he, said, he did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as God as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire. Ahaz, in a less explicit description, even Solomon worshipped and allowed the worship of the god Moloch. Now, Moloch was the most despised idol in God in the Old Testament days. You know why? Because central to the worship of Moloch was sacrificing children in a horrific manner to become successful to deal with Moloch promise. You know, you'll be free from this pain. You'll be free from this issue if you worship your, if you worship me by putting your kids through the fire. And I thought, man, that's pretty bad, but it's worse than I imagined. This is what they would do. They would heat up a metal iron statue of Moloch. And Moloch had these, would stand like this, right? And with outstretched arms. And so the statue would have outstretched arms like that. And they would heat up this, this, this statue and almost to the point of it being melting, right? Melting. And they would lay the infant or child on the heated outstretched arms of the statue. And the child would be burned and scalded to death and they would play drums to drown out the cries of the child, to forgive sin, to fix and heal his situation, right? That was the idol belief then. Get this, Ahaz and Solomon, kings of, of Judah, kings of Israel, allowed it and did it. So that their cause and internal angst could be saved. 
And this is so backwards again to what God asked for, right? We are here to keep our children from death and harm, not to keep us from death and harm. It is the folly of idolatry. Our children have kept us from inner harm and warm from the cold that sometimes is within our own hearts. And as we think about the worship and sacrifice of kids to Malik, there are some ways we do this that are easier to see and accept than others, right? Child abuse, whether physical, emotional, or sexual, are forms of idolatry, of tridolatry, in that children have become a perfect sacrifice. Understand what a sacrifice does. A sacrifice takes your sin on them. Right? You lay your pain on them. So children can easily become a scapegoat, a cross-bearer for the pain we feel. Maybe because work isn't going right, or it's been a long day, or we feel failure, or we have mental and emotional torment going on, or anger, or fear, and sexual brokenness on ourselves, and parents, and adults in responsible positions of authority with children use them and burn them to take away the pain and brokenness in them in ways only a Savior should. And can. There is something about their innocence, truly, and vulnerability that makes them the best sacrifices as clean and and perfect, some kind of clean cleansing rag or or band-aid where we can bleed and relieve ourselves at their expense, and God sees it as an abomination, as something detestable at the highest level. And I'm not foolish enough. And I'm too experienced enough to think that kind of stuff doesn't happen as much, if not more, within church circles. Or to believe that folks in this congregation or under the sound of my voice have not only experienced child abuse, but now causing or have caused the experience for others. But taking our pain away by passing on pain to our children may not be as conspicuous as some forms of child abuse, right? I mean, in our passage about David giving advice to young Solomon, it was about him, not just dealing with the past, but giving and asking Solomon almost directly. I got this thing in me right now, Solomon. I got this pain right now, but I'm too old to deal with it, right? I got this elderly feeling. In fact, the Bible describes David as being cold. And they even bring a a young woman in there to warm him up, right? Like uh, the Bible says, okay? And and it's sort of like he, he is... He cannot deal with whatever is going on in his body, in his life, in his painful, and he's, no, he's dying and death is at his door. And then the Bible says, he, he just directly says, Solomon, right now, I need you to take my pain. And we do that by pushing our kids to take away the feeling that our legacy is on the line. To take away or take us to the place where friends and neighbors can think we're great parents. To take away our hatred of ourselves and our jobs. To be beautiful and cute in ways we are not. To take away our loneliness, to, to take away through through putting emotional and mental pressure on them 
Have you ever heard of emotional incest? Sounds sordid, doesn't it? It is because of what we know in, in, primarily about sexual incest. In his book, Silently Seduced, uh, When Parents Make Their Children Partners, Understanding Covert Incest by Ke Kenneth Adams, he says it occurs when parents treat their child like an emotional confidant and friend and calls them inadvertently or directly to adult roles before they are ready. And it more often happens in, in, in single-family households or in traditional households where there is emotional brokenness in the marriage or extended family members aren't getting along. And in her book, We Real Cool, Men and Masculinity, author, professor, social activist, and feminist, the late, great Dr. Bell Hooks, she passed away last year. Man, some of the best material I've read, especially black men masculinity stuff, was by Dr. Bell Hooks. Gloria Hooks is her real name. It says that black men, in her, in her context, are ruined and twisted. Hear this now. When they are treated and get titles like little man. He's the man of the house. And when they serve to hear and bear, now this was her context, all of mama's stories about how their daddy ain't nothing, how no man ain't nothing, they don't treat you right, and what friends have done or not done, and how they are this and that, and, and, and some of, man, have you seen some of the, the TikTok clips and stuff where children are actually having adult things come out their mouths and in adult conversations and situations, and, 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 and they're, they're participating in grown folks' mess, and when they share deep emotional tears and scars and, and talk and share and lean on them for their loneliness and rejection, it's using your children to take your pain away. And Bell Hooks further explores the dynamics behind older male advice to kids. Men and fathers and uncles and older brothers, guys in the barbershop or at the cookout or online forums, in the form and name of good advice, like David gave Solomon, become dumping grounds for toxic masculinity. And it burns young minds and young hearts and young souls and young bodies. And we drown out the truth of what we're doing. We play the drums real loud of, you know, I had to teach a young buck. Had to teach a young bull. You know, I got, I, got, I got to help the young men know what it's like to be a man, right? All that foolishness. And it's like the drums of, 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 of silence and, 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 and deafness in our lives about what's going on when we do those things. And, and she goes on to explain how, how men will talk about how a man should treat a woman and, and discuss sexuality in ways that are, that are perverse and wrong and, again, toxic mas masculinity stuff and, 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 and all of that. And it might not be that explicit for you or me. But we do it all the time in various ways sharing and displaying adult and intimate brokenness and using our, our children as therapists. Come on, some of us do it. You can't get along with your husband, can't get along with your friend, and you go in, you know, boy, I tell you, these people no good. What are you doing? They're 10. They're 12. They're 16. They don't need to know about you and your boyfriend. They don't need to hear about you and that man they call daddy, right? They don't need to know about the no good whatever. 
It's incestuous. It's putting him on, it's burning them. You know why? Because you have no place else to go for your pain. We use them as scapegoats to ease and help our pain after work. By calling them to perform well or do things perfectly. And by all means, not be like dot, dot, dot. Whether it's me, whether it's your father, whether it's your mama, whether it's whoever else has come before you. Because I'm living with the pain of what they did to me. But the degree of my trying to break and the, 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 the degree by which we try to break and twist and force for coercion and shame induced pushing and some of us straight meanness and physical pain burns them in the long run and we play the drums again to cover their suffering and pain with statements and we lie to ourselves. You know, Clark, oh man, I didn't know you were going to be here today either. <laughs> Sorry, I usually ask for permission, but I think this makes you look like the hero here. Okay. This ain't nothing bad you did. This is something good you did. So Clark decided to confront me sometime last week. And boy, the proud of being a parent, the way I was raised, I was like, there was a boundary. There was like, I was up on, hey, he better not cross the line of disrespect. But he was all too clear about how our, what we shared with him, our views on things, were toxic, and now he would have to carry them. He's pretty insightful. He's still as insightful as me, but don't. <laughs> don't let that go to your head. Your brain don't stop fully developing until you're like 25. But, um, but he made it clear that it was our pain and not his to carry, but that we had shackled him with it to make sure he didn't feel the pain we were going through and could feel better about ourselves. But it left him with a life of confusion and struggle in certain areas. And I agree. I have shared, non-biblically based, my view, my pain advice with him a number of times, and it is not freeing. It has been rightly and truly like David, toxic, and like Ahaz and Malik, scarring. He got to deal with that now because I let stuff come out of my mouth or because I was going through something. And it's hard being a PK, right? Because you feeling something, it, you know, sometimes Kelly's like, I don't feel like hearing all that. But not only do we look to them to be our saviors, but let me transition to our sense of worth. Much of the advice David gave Solomon was not about Solomon's good. Though shrouded that way, it was about David's glory and David's good. The fact of your parent, the beauty of your child, the way you have them dressed and treat them is a great honor to you. They represent you. Man, I didn't know I was going to say this one either, Clark. So Clark <laughs> is in a play. Is it a play? A musical. Oh, gosh. Got my wife here, degree in fine arts. Got to get it right. A musical. Little Shop of Horrors. His school's doing it. And Clark is Audrey too, the plant. Feed me, right? And so afterwards, I mean, he 
Y'all, I ain't gonna lie. My boy was good. <laughs> my boy was good. He was the best one, see? And you better be better tonight. It's the closing night. No, see? Uh, no pressure, son. No pressure. Um, but he was so good. Afterwards, all I wanted to do is I wanted everybody to know he was with me. And we stood there. Where's Clark? Come on up with the crowd. He was down there talking to some friends. No, come to the middle of the room and let me stand with you, please. Forget your friends. They over there. Yay. No, come on up here where the parents are. I'm mad at the mic. Why? Not because of how he might feel in his performance, but because I want to look good. There's some natural goodness to that, but there's some glory to that that, that, that we can turn and put back wrong pressure or wrong hope for ourselves as parents. I talked to my um, a friend who is a pastor of a church. Well, I've talked to many friends in many situations like this, and it's a story I keep hearing over and over. We can't grow because we don't have a dynamic children's ministry. We don't have a dynamic youth ministry. And boy, I'll tell you, the links churches will go for children and youth ministry because parents have to have their children be their glory. You, it's got to be like, look at our children's ministry. <laughs> Mom, dad, look at the children's ministry I picked for my kids. <laughs> right? And yes, there's some authentic, I am so hoping they get the word of God. Yes, that's very important. But no, they don't need to go to Carolyn's every week to be a good children's ministry. Right? Boy, the links. And I mean, look, we might not have a children's wing as big as this sanctuary. And trust me, churches do. Like, I saw this church. They started the church. And the children's area was built first. Okay? And the children's area was three times the size of the worship area because they wanted to put it first. But when I talked to the pastor, he was like, you know, if you're going to get families and you're going to stabilize giving units, you got to have children, right? It's why we pay so much to go to Disney, right? I know Disney's kind of controversial right now for some of y'all, just forget it. <laughs> get over it. Get over it right now. I'm using it. I don't care. Get over it. Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. Okay, I heard this thing this week like, you know, Disney doesn't stand for Christian values, so we're only watching old Disney shows. Ha <laughs> 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 ha. Okay, we're not all oh, Pastor Brown. Please don't do it. I'm not crossing the line. <laughs> but let me tell you, we might not have Disney at Christ Central. Disney World ain't back there. But we got Walt Disney. Her name is Erin McFadden. And hopefully, Walt, will get a kingdom, magic kingdom one day, right? Back there, looking like, I don't know, the Saturn, Lord of the Rings back there, maybe. <laughs> but sometimes we put too much in them. I understand. Have you ever had a baby smile at you? <laughs> you ever had a to to toddler hug you? <laughs> 
You ever seen them feet? Little ham hocks? The knees with the fat around it? I want my boys to go back to being one. Just so I can... Ain't it chubby? Oh, my gosh. It's terrible trying to wash between them folds, but oh, my gosh. (laughs) They give us worth. They give us love. Who wouldn't want another human being that unconditionally loves you and needs you? Right? It's almost like you can't have enough children. If you just didn't have to raise them, and then you could just enjoy them when their legs look like ham hocks, that would be great. <laughs> and when they walk the first time, good, ah! Now go on. Right. If they could just go from this to a good job somewhere, that'd be great. <laughs> right? I don't be careful here because I'm getting to something more serious. When you fail to conceive, man, again, Years of going through this with lots of young couples and older couples. Let me say this. When the horror of miscarriages and lack of conceptions for whatever reason drops on your life, it is a time for tears and sorrow. Because in light of the fall, something must have gone wrong considering what God said to and how he equipped the first couple with in the garden. I cry with you. I hope with you. For those who want that, I want to explore the medical and adoptive options with you. But when this terrible thing becomes news for your life, let me put it this way too, or the community around you makes it a horror story for your life. Because sometimes, you know, I've heard people say, you know, I'm just... God's called me to be single. God's called me to be like this. God's made me this way, right? But then there's so much pressure, especially in our traditions, church-wise, that we feel, you know, there's this belief that the goal of Christian family is to reproduce enough to take over America, right? Yeah, that happens. It it, it exists. There, There is this, Uh, theonomy. There's this view that somehow Jesus will return when we've multiplied the earth enough with Christian children. If you're a woman, what's your purpose? Right? And so when you have children, it is easy to look at them as more than just God's blessing to the world. And yes, blessing to you, but part of your purpose and plan in the redemptive kingdom, sort of like the sole purpose and plan you have. And I'm sorry that we have been churches and communities that make you feel crummy if you aren't a mother. It's wrong. It's abusive. Because we somehow have put children as this new badge of honor. I've had people say it, Pastor Brown, when I had a child, I finally became a part of the church. So the children are now entry 
into, a, into real community, into real value and real worth. And when that stuff starts to happen, now children take a space that they shouldn't take. Your entry into community has never been your child. It's been God's son. And everybody can have him. But when they become our worth, they got to be good. Isn't it? See, idols are interesting because idols are kind of easy to get. But they're harder to keep God, right? They're harder to maintain. Like, I got a great idol, but he can't or she can't be God without me continually making him God over and over and over again. So some of us spoil our kids. Your kid's the king of the house, the queen of the house. Why? Because they're your God. I've seen it. You can't do nothing because of nap time. Why? I remember it was, it was freeing for me and Kelly not to live in the deep south for a while, right? And go to the pediatricians up there. It was so different. Because we were like, what should we do with this baby? What time should they go to bed? And you know what she said? What time you go to bed? What? Well, what kind of bassinet? Well, some people just pull a drawer out of their dresser and they do it. She didn't say that. She was making a joke. Okay. She did go to Harvard and John Hopkins. She might know what she's talking about. Right? But it was so, such a different mindset where the family and world were not child-centric, but Christ-centric. You know how many relationships and friendships are broken apart when people get married and have children? Because there's this idolatrous protection and of the child, and it gets weird, y'all. You do not have a gold baby. Surprise! Your child is not the most important person in the world. They are among all the people in the world, and that automatically makes them important. But you are trying to maintain something. You can't keep maintaining. And now you're going to create a brat. Not, not a child brat, an adult brat. I'm spoiled too. <laughs> Let me preach this, Kelly, okay? <laughs> Let me preach this thing. I remember we first met. I said, Kelly, you need to know this. I am the firstborn, I had to throw this in there, male in my, in my generation. First grandson. I said, son. I'm the golden child. And Kelly says, well, I am too. I am the queen. I'm the princess. And I knew we were going to have problems right there. Right? She says, my mama treated me like I was the 
princess. Like, she, she was the queen. She was gold. She was golden. She was a golden child. And she married a golden child. And now I'm a spoiled golden child who's a husband and a father. And that makes for disaster. Because things, when they don't go my way, I can't sacrifice the way I'm called to be a husband and a father. And then I'm frustrated that I'm a bad dad. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Let me close. Let me get to this. Let's look at Deuteronomy. I, I wish I could say that line from the color purple. You remember? He don't make, he ain't no two goods husband or man or something. What, what Seely said to the dad, you didn't raise him. Anyway, forget it. I can't. <laughs> I just love that line she said. You don't make, you made him a no too good man and he ain't no good husband now. Or, ah, I shouldn't even have, that's recorded. Crud. <laughs> Pastor Brown got lost so much. Y'all just don't be knowing. When I be pausing, seem like the spirit talking. No, I'm lost. <laughs> Let me go ahead and just reveal the pastoral secret. You'd be like. <clears throat> You'd be lost. <laughs> Thinking of the, the joke, got lost or something. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Yes. The Lord speaking. Okay. Verse 20 says this, in the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Remember, David told them all the laws and decrees. He told Solomon all that stuff. Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had sworn to give our ancestors. Right? Boy, I read that kind of fast. Sorry. God is saying to his people to tell the next generation and the central message of parent to child to tell the story about how you were slaves. Why? Yes, so kids can know God. But this is just as much for parents. The story led parents to remember where their hope is, where their real redemption is. Remember how and where they escape condemnation. Remember what makes you and your child worth something. Remember where love comes from. God's saying from me. To remember where the help to even raise these children comes from, not in your own hands, not in your own power, not in your own assessments and building of things, not in what you provide, which will prove to be incomplete or a failure, but according to what the Lord has given you by grace. Your parenting, your care for children is about God's care for you. And a lack of belief in this leads us fighting for all those things outside of the Lord. And as twisted and as passing kids through the fire may be, our utter struggle for purpose and meaning and salvation and worth, apart from the message of grace, will lead us to offer our children instead of taking God's offer of grace for and to us. And Jesus makes this truth clearer and deeper. I don't have that scripture. But when his disciples thought he was being bothered by children because he's teaching. Like he is the rabbi. He's the man. And here come all these dirty kids, right? That kids with the hands not right. Leave Jesus alone, man. He don't want to get sick. 
bunch of coughing and snotty kids. No. And then they dealing in holy stuff, kids. I remember I was in church. And, you know, they have the little showbread table, little holy table up front where they put the communion on. And I was tired. I just kind of leaned on it. Hey, baby, get off that. That's holy. Right? It was one of those things. Get off that. Get off Jesus. Don't get sit on his left. Eat holy. Y'all kids ain't. We don't know what y'all, what y'all believe. And Jesus says this. Let the little children come. And he says this. Such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you come like them, you can't come. It's interesting. Bring your children to Jesus. Give your care of them to him. Don't keep them to yourself. Don't keep them for yourself. Raise them towards me. You know what it means to to raise a child in the way you should go? It means to... Send them to Christ in the way they're bent, right? Lead them in your raising in the way they're growing, not in the way you want them to go, but in the way they're bending towards the Lord, not towards you, because our purposes are twisted outside of him. Now look what he finishes with here. The motivation, the ability to free them to Jesus. And free them from being used as sacrifice and idols for your own good is this. See how you come to him like them. The key to being free from the practices of childolatry is becoming a child yourself. Let them come. Why? Trust them with me. Why? Because and as you come. In other words, our propensity to use our kids to make them suffer for us, to make them pass through the fire, to exasperate them, is about our lack of coming to Jesus to care for us as his children. That you and I have not known the care of sitting on God's knee of not needing to be all cleaned up and not dirtied for playing in the mud and getting all sick and snotty. We've never known a God who would accept us just the way we are. Having him look in our eyes with a glance that gives us worth of having God be our father, one who redeems us and frees us from condemnation. And here is the hit. We will cause our children to pass through the fires when we have not seen and known and trusted one who goes through the fire for us and by extension goes through the fire for our children. Don't you know the story of the Bible? Do you know why it was so detestable for them to pass kids through the fire? Obvious reasons, right? But the redemptive reason. God didn't want you passing your child to the fire. Because the story of Scripture is he was going to pass his child through the fire so that we would find what we need or long for or lack as parents and children in him. So that we will not see the need or have the desire to use our children, to abuse our children, to burn our children, to sacrifice our children, and even be redeemed from being a child who once experienced that. Jesus saying you don't have to go through the fires of condemnation anymore. 
If you're abused as a kid, you don't have to go through the fire over and over and over and feel the burns over and over in the way you do. He's saying Jesus went through the fire. If you were abused, Jesus was abused. If you were neglected, Jesus was neglected. He's saying, let me be your savior and lay that on me instead of the next generation. Jesus saying, come to me, children. Come to me, children who are parents and want to be parents or caretakers or adults. I alone give new life. I alone can heal what your parents did to you or left you. And I alone forgive what you have done. I alone can sit you on God the Father's knee where you can call him Abba, Father, which means Daddy. And that gives you worth for your souls. I alone, Jesus saying, have come to heal the burns of children past through the fire who have become parents and adults. And I alone, by my grace, love your children enough to save them from the fire you put them by on your own hands. Let all the little children come to me, even the ones you've already messed up. Even all the ways. My boys are 18 and 20. And I look at them like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. I see my messed upness. I see the burns. I see the scars. I see all the screwed up things I put them through. But it's not too late. They coveted children. Thank you, Jesus, for putting, going through the fire for them. Because I'm going to tell you, the condemnation will never end for you. Some of you have children who have children too young in your mind. Some hadn't finished school. Some are doing this. Some don't know what they're doing. Jesus does. You don't have to live in condemnation, parents. And this is where the cycle's broken. Not by you being a perfect parent, but a parent who finds a perfect Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We've all participated in idolatry. We've all experienced it in our lives. We're all broken by it. We all have all these crazy stories. Many of us have stories we are afraid to tell. Ways we were neglected. Ways we were mistreated. Ways we were played forward. Oh, Jesus, you went through the fire. And when you went through the fire... You turn the flame off. Yes, we're scarred. But you're promising us that the scars will not define us. Lord, it's a deep topic, especially as we think about our own parents and our own parenting and ways we blamed ourselves and live in constant condemnation of not being enough. Thank you, you are enough. Help us, Lord, to share in healthy ways, healthy ways, how we were broken and Jesus saved us. To our kids, help us to tell the story over and over and over that God sent his son Jesus to save sinners, those who sin and those who've been sinned against. Lord, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.